Kali Baba McConnell works in a shelter and on the streets of Northampton as a certified recovery coach and peer specialist. He operates a one-man nonprofit called Nothing But Kindness, which offers resources to those who face addiction and homelessness. If someone is in need of shelter, a detox bed, a meal, or Narcan, he's often there to offer information on resources or a helping hand. Welcome to the Monday Conversation from And Another Thing with Derek Kennedy. I'm Maya Schwader. Kalibaba says his passion is to help those who are addicted and living on the streets because he's been there himself. He gave up a high-paying career as an IT professional to start his nonprofit five years ago. For now, it's a self-funded operation focused on street outreach and harm reduction. McConnell says his own journey with addiction began with the toll that professional drumming took on his body. Growing up in the Berkshires, he met a friend at Pittsfield High School who happened to be the son of folk singer Arlo Guthrie. And Guthrie just happened to need a drummer for his tour. And I was playing drums for people like Arlo Guthrie and Willie Nelson and Pete Seeger. And I had this awesome life where, like literally right out of high school, I like won the lottery basically in terms of life. I had experimented with a few things on tour, like tried some pot, but it wasn't really a focus of ours. Fast forward to, I'm not on tour anymore, and I'm a father, I'm raising a daughter, I'm working IT. My last contract was with Homeland Security. But in the middle of all that, my drumming caught up with me. I had several spine surgeries. I had seven surgeries in four years at the height of the opioid crisis with the whole Purdue Pharma, Sackler stuff. And I just watched Dope Sick. I cried after every episode. It literally took so much of my self-shame and blame off of my own shoulders because no one stood a chance. When you hear you know, how they engineered this for financial gain and it really didn't matter, the, the collateral damage. So I didn't really have experience or a habit or anything like that or any chaotic use until I started getting opiates prescribed to me for my chronic pain and my surgeries. And when the doctors cut you off, all of a sudden you don't even know what withdrawal is, but you're sick and you know you're in pain. So start asking your friends, hey, anybody got any Percocets in their medicine box? And once you go through all that and all your family members, then you're like, oh, I got to find Percocets. I started buying Percocets on the street or doctor shopping or going to the ER, like anything to stop that sickness. McConnell, now a former touring musician, is currently working on an album with plans to use the proceeds to support his nonprofit. And he tells us the name Nothing But Kindness was inspired by the kindness his daughter showed him while he was fighting his addiction. I fund it with personal money. Everything that I do for Nothing But Kindness is 100% unpaid. I want this work to be beyond reproach. I'm not here trying to churn people out and make money. I'm looking at this as if someone could have come to my daughter or my parents and said, I want to help you guys navigate this. I think about how much less terror they would have gone through. So to me, it's not about the money. It's a giant disparity from my lifestyle from when I was working at Homeland Security doing IT. You make low six figures. And that was a very different lifestyle than choosing this this work instead of going back to IT where I'm lucky if after expenses I crack 10 grand, if that. With this work, I get up at 3.30. I don't even like set an alarm anymore. I am literally like, why aren't other people open? Let's go do this. So it's work that really feeds my soul and it resonates with what I do. Kali Baba says he believes the current addiction service model is not set up to properly attend to what folks living with this condition really need. And further, that the process of getting help in the system is not straightforward. 
I try to be an advocate and a collector of people's concerns. I do outreach multiple times a week on top of running the center in Northampton, connecting with people where they're at. And I don't like platitudes. I don't like catchphrases, you know, meeting people where they're at. If you really mean that, that's awesome. But if it's just a catchphrase, it really frustrates me because our current model is based around brick and mortar. You come to us, tough love. You either follow our rules or we disconnect from you for our program. Whether you come in and have a positive tax screen and they find opiates in your urine when you're at the methadone clinic and then maybe they kick you off. So you're already struggling. You're getting medicated assisted treatment, but you had a slip up or a hiccup. And then their response is like, oh, you're using. So now we're going to take away the medication that gives you a, a higher probability of actually being able to manage this. So it's punitive. It's judgmental. It's like, if you're not following our rules, then we're not going to be able to help you. I went down and spent three weeks sleeping under the bridge encampment this summer to try to prevent more fatal overdoses that were happening under there. And 500 feet from where a friend of mine, Dylan, died under the bridge is the epicenter of this township. There is a harm reduction organization. There are five mental health organizations and there's town hall. Yet, other than the police presence going down to make sure that everyone was okay, I didn't see anything else. We need to shift that model, the psychology of you need to come to us, you need to meet our expectations, because clearly there's already some barriers or things that are difficult for these people to navigate if they're already experiencing any of these situations, whether it's being unsheltered, food insecurity, chaotic substance consumption, domestic violence, like there's just endless stuff that is traumatic in itself, never mind the entire story that led you up to that point. When I went to detox, I had already stopped consuming opiates for two or three days. I was trying to stop on my own. And when I got there, they tested me and they said, you don't have any opiates in your system. You have to go use and then come back because insurance would not cover my recovery unless I actively had it in my system. So I literally had to leave the detox that I had to buy pills because that's what I was using and come back. I go to detox my first time and the rest of the people that are there, the rest of the guests are like, why are you using pills? Those are so expensive. Heroin is so cheap. And literally I never would have intersected with heroin likely in my life. I've had friends over the years that have used heroin and died from it. It was not something that interested me, but it wasn't about interest anymore. It was about literally trying to be functional. So I come out of detox I went to get help and now I came out like an opiate ninja. I went from being a prescribed opiate user from doctors to someone buying heroin on the streets while I was working at Homeland Security. One week a month I went to DC and I had to be incredibly in withdrawal for that entire week and try not to let it show because obviously regardless of how desperate I was, I knew bringing a controlled substance into Washington, D.C. through Dulles is pretty much the quickest way to go straight to jail. So even in my desperation, I was still clinging to the fact that like, God, this is chaos. I don't even know how this happened to me. What happened? This isn't my personality. And at the time, there was still a lot of self-blame and self-shame and saying like, God, you don't have the, the willpower to not do this or all those things. I didn't understand the science and the chemistry behind it or the psychological aspects of it. In trying to navigate his family and work life while living with addiction, our guest tells us things began to fall apart. 
He ended up living on the streets, which planted the seeds of his advocacy for the homeless. In the middle of homelessness, I started getting really pissed off at seeing people not being able to make their way out of the situation. And I thought, well, again, holding all the privilege that I do, I looked at myself as kind of like the secret shopper of the support network. As a corporate IT-minded person and as a musician and mixing both of those together, I was trying to be able to better network uh, but also document things and figure out ways to try to improve these processes. And it frustrated me so much that I started a nonprofit, uh, which we just celebrated five-year anniversary in October, and that's called Nothing But Kindness. And really, Nothing But Kindness started as me trying to figure out my way through a horribly broken, antiquated, underfunded, and overburdened system that's based in a tough love model rather than reality and harm reduction. Sometimes folks have a bit of a, a hard time getting to the harm reduction philosophy when it comes to substance use or what someone might have a personal judgment as like a, a destructive or a dangerous or a risky behavior. When we talk about harm reduction in everyday use, that is seatbelts, that is sunblock, that is uh, masks on your face, that is anything that literally reduces risk that you can't control. And a 1% reduction of risk is better than a 0%. And if someone's going to use a substance, I would much rather have them use a substance that came from a known safe supply. Let's say someone going and doing their heroin at a monitored facility where there are medical staff and their drugs can get tested for purity. We can remove the fact that fentanyl is killing people or people are overdosing alone. Right now, the only reason people are dying is because of moral and policy failure. Medically, we know how to stop people from overdosing. Financially, we clearly have the resources as this country. It's just not a priority yet for people. We have the science behind it. We know how to potentially reverse a fatal overdose. There's very few deaths that would actually happen if you could go use your substance and know that if you go out, there's someone there that's going to Narcan you. I myself used in complete isolation and shame and shadows because I didn't want anyone to know I was using. I upped my risk of, of fatality significantly. McConnell says it only recently occurred to him that his background as a drummer helped inspire his desire to help those whom society forgets. Further, he said he's seen that COVID-19 has intensified many of the struggles for those in need of addiction and homeless services. I didn't realize until I started going back and listening to some old albums that all of my touring was with these peace-loving, peace-swinging hippies that were espousing a lot of these philosophies that were obviously sinking into me and that were obviously impactful. But maybe at the time I wasn't aware, you know, Arlo has this great talk about if the world's super crappy, you don't even need to do anything to be awesome. You just need to do the most bare minimum. And that was his kind of way of saying, like, you're not going to fix everything, but can of soup changes someone's life or, you know, hand warmers or, or, or any whatever you can do, whatever is comfortable for you. So the musicianship is often I'll bring my guitar out to do outreach. And a lot of times that's how I engage with folks because everyone likes to talk about music. I don't even need to talk about recovery or drugs or homelessness or anything like that with folks because that's not the only thing that they are. They're an entire human with complex mosaics and facets of awesome personalities. But maybe the thing that I'm seeing is the loudest thing or the strongest 
color on the palette right now, but there are all these other things that end up getting dismissed and minimized to the average person that's struggling. There are 3,000 beds in shelters in Massachusetts. There's 18,000 reported unsheltered people in Massachusetts, and there's only 3,000 beds. That's ridiculous. If we bring that to detoxes, as of this morning, statewide, there are only 56 beds open in detox. Statewide. That's insane to me. And now with, I've just in the last couple of days seen a bunch of detoxes getting shut down because of COVID infections. Overdose rates, substance consumption rates, and people's trauma responses have been skyrocketing and continue to skyrocket over the last two years. People with any kind of mental health barrier or challenge, it's exacerbated by all this stuff. 20% of the unsheltered folks uh, experience severe mental health challenges or barriers. 16% are related to chaotic substance use, and 44% of unsheltered folks have reported a disability. It's very clear we need to have better mental health services available for people and remove barriers and get better access. And it's the same with getting into detox and not needing to test positive to get into detox or seven days is not recovery. I didn't recover in seven days. It was a years long process. So when we can take the financial incentive out of turning folks through detoxes to boost dollar signs and when it really comes about saving people's lives, then we are going to have a much higher success rate. And that's what I hope these conversations move us towards. You're listening to the Monday Conversation on And Another Thing. When we return, Northampton harm reduction specialist Kali Baba McConnell will tell us about the darkest moment of his addiction and how he's using his experience to fight for others who are still in the grip of opioids. Stay with us. Welcome back to And Another Thing with Derek Kennedy. I'm Maya Schwader. In today's Monday conversation, we're hearing from Kali Baba McConnell, an activist, now six years sober from opioids, who works as a peer counselor for those who are still using. Kali Baba tells us at the lowest point in his addiction, he had a detailed plan how to end his own life, but a revelation led him to change course. I literally was two days away from my suicide plan because I could not kick. I couldn't get off of opiates. Everything I tried wasn't working, and I was terrifying my parents. I felt that my daughter was ashamed and embarrassed, and I figured I'm going to die in a few years anyways after a few more years of struggling, so why don't I just end it now? So that way, it, it was really like an act of love for my family that I saw around me. And two days before that plan was supposed to happen, something changed, and I realized I couldn't do that to my family, and that's not a judgment on anyone's path or anything like that, but for me, I felt like I needed to take advantage of that moment I drove to detox. I never went back to my apartment, not even to get my stuff. Because every time I went back, my dealer would be waiting there with some free heroin. I changed my number. I dropped off of social media. I had the luxury to do that. Not everyone does. Some people are in relationships or family pods where they have to stay. And there's other people using in that space. Or some people are don't have the luxury of relocating. Or any number of things. I had already disconnected from my job, so I didn't have to worry about being embarrassed at work, but that's a big concern for folks. Statistically, at least half of the people that you're looking at have had their own experience with somebody or themselves with chaotic use, and I get dozens of messages and phone calls every week from people I know, don't know, hey, don't tell anybody, 
but my sister this, or my son this, or I this, and I can't tell anybody. And I so often hear from people, I can't tell anybody, I can only tell you or other, you know, hey, people that that's how people end up making decisions that are risky and scary to avoid all this judgment, and it puts people at mortal risk. Now his mission is to erase the stigma of addiction and homelessness. In addition to the nonprofit he founded, last summer he spent a week sleeping under the South Street Bridge in Northampton to bring attention to the plight of those who have no other choice. He's now making plans to do it again. Every night that there is adverse weather, I usually can't sleep because I can think off the top of my head of 47 people that are outside sleeping. And I'm getting ready to go sleep outside for a week this month under the bridge with folks because there's supposed to be five COVID recovery and isolation sites in Massachusetts. And one is supposed to be in Hampshire County where I'm at. There is not one here. So people that are testing positive coming into our center here are ended up out in Boston, removed from their social supports, their family, their regular lives, any possibility of not going deeper into any kind of psychological battle that they're going at. Not only that, just since this summer, we've had a number of fatal overdoses, sexual assaults, suicides, and homicides that our community, the folks that are unsheltered or struggling or just in this orbit, have had to deal with. The system in general is not set up to do what I spoke about earlier and going to meet people where they're at, literally, not just figuratively. If someone is afraid to come out from under the bridge because their domestic abuser is out looking for them, they're not going to come to your appointment. If someone has a warrant and they're afraid that if they go into a building that they're going to get turned into the cops, they're not going to come for help. I have no budget. I have no budget. And I've been able to be partners in opening a center for our community, unfunded, that we try to make this a harm reduction based philosophy accessible space. If you show up at nine in the morning and you've got whiskey on your breath, guess what? You just slept under a bridge in 20 degree weather and you were rained on and maybe someone came by and stole your shit. I could care less if you chose that nip rather than that Egg McMuffin because you slept outside last night and you're dealing with your own stuff. So if someone shows up under the influence, we just say to them, hey, are you okay? All right, cool, no judgment. Um, And it's based on behavior. If they're safe and they're not making other people feel unsafe, come on in. We asked him if his advocacy work and counseling is seeing any success. Recovery and success to me, it's a, it's a very broad spectrum. So success stories to me used to be a full end result. And we have some of those. We have gotten lucky with some folks. But some folks, there's a family I work with that originally was really strongly based in tough love. And they were getting ready to ask their daughter to leave because she wouldn't stop consuming. and I met with the entire family and we were having conversations and I brought up harm reduction. And this particular person was like, no, this is her choice. She's got to stop this or else she's got to leave. And I said, okay, but why do you want her to stop? And he said, well, I want her to be safe. I want her to be alive. I said, if she doesn't have a place to stay, chances are there's a handful of things that might happen. You got to find a place to stay. So do you have any money? No, if you don't, what do you have left? chances are a lot of transactional sex work goes on for people just to find a place to stay that night or for their substances or for resources they need to survive, which is dangerous. With this family, I explained that. And then he said, no, still her choice. So I took a little bit of a gamble and I'm super grateful I did because I'm 
super tight with this family now. A success story for me is maintaining a relationship where I might not see someone for six weeks and then they come back and they're like, I'm ready for detox. Let's do this. Where I look at nothing but kindness as having an impact is navigating the grays. It's the shades in between. It's the periphery. It's where people don't fit the majority, where people are the smaller percentage or the people that haven't responded to the existing traumatic model in a way that would give them any kind of relief. So that success question to me, um, I feel like I have a success every single day. By having this place open, our community is different. Northampton now has a community care coordinator uh, that's working out of town hall. That is different. We are setting up the resiliency hub for Hampshire County that will be going live in like two years. So we're helping create the program here. We now have a locker project that's installed in Northampton. So unsheltered folks have some secure storage. If we have the lockers, people right before they go into the shelter, if they have something they can't have at the shelter, they can go lock it up there. So that way it's not in the shelter. While he says he feels he is making a difference, there are other opportunities for people to be a part of the solution to the opioid crisis. And he offers a message of hope. Not everyone can show up on the front lines and go sleep under a bridge for three weeks. Not everyone has money to give or time to give. And it doesn't even need to be a physical resource. It could be forwarding information to your particular group of folks in social media and destigmatizing things and taking the shame out of it. That's why I lived so loud with my recovery because I lived in shame before and I almost died because of it. And no one should die because other people are making judgments. And I just want to try to lessen that for the coming generations. I really believe that there are infinite pathways to recovery. Not everyone will recover. You know, when they say recovery is probable, I don't think it's probable. I think it's possible if you have the right resources, you have the right environment, you have the right luxuries, you have the benefit of all of those things aligning at the very moment that you are motivated enough to be able to commit to that change and have it be supported, then it's possible. But under our current model, it's either recovery or death or jail. And under a more humane and compassionate and trauma-informed model, it's like, okay, you're struggling. I'm still here. And I'm not going to not talk to you tomorrow because your urine came back with meth in it. It's important for me to let people set the pace for my relationship with them. I might share an experience of mine, or I might give somebody options. I try to stay as neutral as possible in my interactions and be a booster rocket for folks that just don't have the energy or the skill or the ability or the resources to advocate for themselves. And uh, to me, those are all successes every single day. Kylie Baba McConnell, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure to hear your story. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of And Another Thing with Derek Kennedy. I'm Maya Schwader. Thanks for joining us.